So the first question that we'd like to pose to the panelists today is, how do you define diaspora? And how is diaspora performed within your field, whether it's your field of research or your field of artistic practice? Um, and the first person who's going to speak to that question is Professor Bebe Clark. I know that what we're doing here is for a broader audience. So we may be spending more time on the introductions than we do on the talk. But I hope that each one of you who has been um, inspired enough to come out will come up and talk to each one of us. So to respond to that question, I always say that given that um, I taught what is known as negritude in 1968 in New York, when these were the first open school systems um, public school systems, what you all know as um, open admissions, partially here, and then um, affirmative action. I was always seeking a place where I could talk about the Francophone or the French-speaking African writers. And so I felt I was on a journey. Let's not even go through all of that. <laughs> you want to hear about performing diaspora. So what, what I, I say to people now is... I don't feel that I need to define diaspora any, anymore because it is so fluid at this point. All I can say to you is what I do, and I'll give you some examples, um, is no longer scholarship. I live in this world. And you may ha hear something very similar from others on the panel. And I, I want to make that distinction that the definitions will always be fluid. So let me tell you the three um, points that I want to make. I just finished with <clears throat> Professor Sarah Johnson from um, University of San Diego, a book on Catherine Dunham. And I was telling you know, some of my friends, I feel that after we finish this over 600-page book, I've been in a fight with Mike Tyson. And what I mean by that is... People become, when it, when it comes to companies such as Catherine Dunham's that went from 1940s to 1965 with the last performance at the Apollo Theater in New York, people who are still alive, who are in the company, tend to get, how do I say it, uh, they tend to claim territory that is not their own. So I want to say something that opens the, our understandings of diaspora, and then I'll get back to Dunham, because we're going to look at the connections with um, a, 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 a section from Stormy Weather. Is that something that you all have seen? Let me see the hands. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Most of you haven't seen it, and then I'll tell you one of the ways that we can talk about performing diaspora. First of all, when you have someone like Ms. Dunham who is involved as a dancer, a trained dancer, who did so many different um, genres, and I, we, we can deal with that later, and who is also trained as an anthropologist, something she inherited 
from the Russian diaspora is really important for you all to know. Okay, if you can hang with me with the dates, then we can go on a journey that's very important. There was a point at which Russian music of the 1850s had been taken over by the French. And if you know anything about um, lists and the rest, they called themselves in Russia the mighty handful. And they decided to use Russian folk music as a way to get closer to the subject of their performance. One of the persons who was part of the mighty handful was Muzorsky. If you know any music, you know where I'm going with this. And he became the teacher of the person whose name you would know, and I'm gonna see if somebody can shout it out, who was responsible for the Rite of Spring, or, huh? Uh, see, I know somebody would know it. Igor. Igor Stravinsky, okay? And so we're talking about something that happened in 1917. It's saying it in French, you know, le sac du printemps, or the rite of spring. There is a direct link, but these are diasporas. All right? So we could just stop here and shut up. However, Miss Dunham and her teacher at the time, I don't want to go into that detail, decided that what they learned from, in the 30s from the Russian example of bringing folk knowledge onto the stage and dance, right, would be called a ballet negre. And so Ms. Dunham's first um, piece called Lagia is draw drawn from a martial arts dance from Martinique that looks so much like what, you, what people do here in Oakland. Mm. <laughs> Don't start laughing. You know what I'm saying? Capoeira. Mm -hmm. But in the diaspora, Martinique is one of the few places that does have that version of martial arts. So you hear what I'm saying? Research to performance is not dead. It still is maintained at Brown University, right, on the East Coast. They have been working on research to performance since the late 70s and 80s. And so they will invite scholars to take their research and take it out into the community, and the community becomes a part of moving that research onto the stage. Okay, I gotta shut up soon. Um, what you're gonna see, I wanna put in another context. And that comes from a Frenchman, and I love to argue with the French, given that I spent so much time in Duenelle, <laughs> as of 1969, as a graduate student when I first came out here. Sometimes I go along with the deconstructionist stuff. The only one that I really, as a theorist that I really had, have admired is, you know, is, is Foucault. However, Pierre Nora did something that um, I had to question. So when we look at this, these two sections from Stormy Weather, I want to introduce something for you to be looking for involving performing diaspora. <laughs> 
as far as Dunham is concerned, because she didn't just do the Caribbean, bringing it from the Caribbean to the United States. She was involved also in, how do I say it, as an archivist herself, resurrecting African-American dances. So there, I'll start with the, with the French. Pierre Noir was talking about um, what the French Revolution meant in its bicentenary. And you can only understand it if you understand the French. So he came up with this term, and the book is called Dieu de mémoire. And it means sites of memory. And it was a way to distance oneself from the fact that 200 years later, you can't possibly remember what happened during the French Revolution. But there was one line in there that I thought I needed to deal with. And he said, the reason I'm calling what I'm doing lieu, as a historian, lieu de mémoire, is that there are no longer any milieu de mémoire. Now, the French can play on those words. So he's talking about sites of memory and environments of memory. If you know anything in the diaspora about the ways in which, and I'm sure everybody else up in here is going to talk about this, in which performance is passed on by memory then you know he was talking smack. <laughs> okay? There, there are sites of memory, and so what we're going to see here, and I have to do this quickly because others have to speak, is that in this short piece with um, Lena Horne singing, Don't Know Why, <laughs> and you should be able to finish that. There's no sun up in the sky. There you go. <laughs> The first one is a milieu de mémoire. And what you have to understand is that a lot of the choreography that Ms. Dunham um, researched was right there in the clubs, the ballrooms, et cetera, where, where, where bloods hung out. So the first one is a milieu de mémoire. The second one is very different. And it's any of you who are in, you know, uh, in modern dance here, it's clearly modern dance, and when you know it's modern dance, it's people falling on the floor. I'm joking, but you know what I'm <laughs> saying here. <laughs> so if we could roll those two, then you know we could talk afterward. And I invite you up here to look at my my um, my, my uh, <coughs> colleague Millicent Hodgson's wonderful book on Nijinsky, and then you could just flip through Kaiso to know that we're trying to do our best in performing diaspora, and sometimes diaspora doesn't quite mean what you think it means as far as being confined to one nation state.
comes out of an environment of memory and a site of memory. And obviously, Dunham, as she did, is you know, this is the, the cover that we use was that she was always talking back to those in modern dance who were making it clear that black people could not be involved in modern dance or perform modern dance because their butts were too big. Mm. I just said that to make you wake up. But that's the truth. All right, so um, really, I really thank you for inviting me, both of you, for inviting me um, to talk about Miss Stone. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. My thought was that we could have a counter with Miss um, Tillery talking about some of her work sure. in the field of music. Well, I was watching that film, and this is what struck me. Um, somewhere back in the early 90s, I had what I call an epiphany, which is that after several years of having sung in a rock and roll band and doing R&B and pop music, um, I saw a program of spirituals on television, and it made me both extremely happy and, and extremely angry. And the happy, happiness part came in that I had what I call a spiritual awakening, which is that I recognized that the music I was listening to in this program was something that was deeply embedded in my conscious and subconscious. Uh, it was music that I had heard as a child, and it was also music that uh, woke me up, so to speak. Uh, it awoke my spirit, it awoke my mind, and I thought, gee, this, this is uh, pretty powerful stuff. Maybe I ought to look into this. Um, I did that. I decided that I was going to do a thorough investigation of the African-American spiritual and any kind of music sung by black people that came out of the antebellum South. What's interesting about African-American music, and by music I mean the expression and creation of, is that it's probably some of the most compelling music on the planet. Everybody wants to own it. And most people have no idea where it comes from. So my mission is to help gain recognition and respect for the untempered and unfettered expression of nigritude through music. Um, it's kind of hard to do being that I was born after World War II, so my influences are, are different than those of someone who was born, say, in 1898 or 1900 before recorded music. But if you listen, take the time to listen to voices that come from the early 20th century, you will hear a different kind of tonal quality and different way of expressing notes than you would hear today. Also with the spiritual, the spiritual is, th these are folk songs. They are songs that were born out of experiences that people were actually going through on a daily basis, so they reacted to these experiences vocally and verbally. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child is not just a pretty title, you know. Sometimes I really do feel like a motherless child. I've lost my mother. Um, 
Africa, I can't find my way back there. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Uh, over my head, I hear trouble in the air, or I see, hear music in the air. Uh, Lord, how come me here? These are all songs that were born out of people's experiences. Now, if you were to go to Zellerbach Auditorium on a particular night when they have booked a diva, uh, say a classically recognized diva, let's pick one, Jesse Norman. Let's pick another, Kathleen Battle. Let's pick another, Grace Bumbry. We know who these women are, and we know that they have spent uh, long hours training their voices. So we put them in a venue like Zellerbach. They present a portion of their show, which are spirituals. But now they have changed these songs to comply with the, the rules and regulations of, of crossover and uh, reaching a broad audience so that by the time the spiritual gets to the concert stage, it's no longer recognizable as the song that it started out to be, which was a song that was born in the field. This is slave music. So these slaves had no formal music, musical education when these songs were composed. Nobody even knows who these people are. They could barely speak English, and they certainly could not read or write. So they would not have sung these songs as this. Here's a, here's a typical example. Oh, what a beautiful city. Oh, what a beautiful city. Oh, what a beautiful city. Twelve gates to the city. Hallelujah. Now, for me, where I come from, I want to break the TV when I hear that. And it's not... Um, and this is a personal, this, this, is, this is a personal judgment, so bear in mind that everybody doesn't feel this way. What that song really is, Oh, what a beautiful city. Oh, Lord, what a beautiful city. Oh, Lord, what a beautiful city. Twelve gates to the city. Hallelujah. And that's even too modern. But that's, that's as far in the bush as I can get. Um, so here we have, in terms of the diaspora, uh, which to me means disbursement, um, ways in which music has been affected, uh, not necessarily by choice and uh, not under natural circumstances. So what my work is about, again, is to gain respect for the unfettered, untempered expression of black music and black vocalization, you know, as close to what it was, um, you know, circa the 1860s, 1870s. And there are examples of people who still were able to recall, you know, how this sounded. I mean, we can listen to uh, contemporary black pop artists, and really there's, there's not a whole lot of difference uh, between one and another. Um, everybody really sounds the same, but everybody wants to sound like a black singer. Uh, 
Now what I brought with me today, and I'll get there quickly because we, we don't have a whole lot of time. I have been deeply affected by a culture that is dying out and, and desperately needs to be maintained, and that is the culture of the Gullah people who inhabited uh, the sea islands off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. And these are people who were brought to these islands to work, uh, indigo farms, rice cultivation, you know, planters, um, and also carpenters. They would send the men to Europe to learn the art of fine carpentry, and they'd bring them back, and they would make things for uh, the white inhabitants of the region. Now, because these people lived on islands that were separated from the mainland, they were often they often outnumbered uh, the overseers. Now, I'm assuming that all of you know what overseers were. There were people who, in case you don't know, um, were put in charge of the slave population to keep them in check. So in some cases on these islands, you would have a plantation with several hundred slaves and a couple of overseers. Overseer might get drunk at night, pass out, or the slaves might sneak off into the woods. They'd take their mortar and pestles, and they would put a skin over the mortar, and it would become a drum. Uh, now, bear in mind, drums, uh, after a certain point in history, were outlawed. And so you could suffer very serious consequences if you were caught playing a drum. So out of necessity, one of the reasons why black music and singing and hand clapping is so rhythmic is because they had to transfer a lot of these drum rhythms to their hands and their feet. So I brought um, a tape of a group who were called the Georgia Sea Island Singers. And these are the original Georgia Sea Island Singers, uh, led by a woman whose name was Bessie Jones, the great uh, Bessie Jones. And they're going to perform a piece that's called the Buzzard Lope Dance. And this is a dance that was brought over to America during the West African slave trade. Uh, initially, the dance was performed by a person who would imitate a turkey buzzard. And turkey buzzards are very awkward animals. And someone would throw a cloth on the floor, and that person would dance around that cloth. The cloth represented a dead cow or a dead mule. And uh, this dancer would dance around this body, make gestures towards it, and at a particular time uh, would grab up the cloth, which, which would signify that it had seized upon the flesh of this dead animal. Now, coming to America, the dancer came to represent an angel. The cloth came to represent the body of a dead slave. So at that point at which uh, the seizure takes place, it is the angel seizing upon the soul of the dead slave, carrying it away to heaven. So um, we're going to watch now the uh, Georgia Sea Island singers doing the buzzer lope dance. At those days, they put this uh something down on the floor and they dance around it like the buzzer would dance around a, a cow or a dead cow, a mule or something. Well, that's the way they feel, see, according to how they were treated. You understand me? They felt that they was nothing but a old dead cow to throw away in the woods someplace. Mm -hmm. And then the, the buzzard would come around, you know, to pick up the cow. The, the angel was the buzzard that come pick up the, the, the soul out of the old cow. 
Okay, so uh, that was John Davis uh, dancing the buzzard lobe dance. And I think you could probably see that even then, some of the steps that he was doing are uh, movements that you would probably see today in some contemporary, contemporary dance. And the other thing that I want to call con attention to about uh, this group of people uh, there's no drum machines, no synthesizers, no polyphonic instruments, meaning no guitar, no uh, piano or anything like that. But they have uh, created a, what I call a seamless groove. If you were listening, uh, there were no groove killers uh, in that situation. And that is uh, making reference to what you said earlier, Vive. Uh, one of the ways in which um, oral communication is so significant and important in African-American culture. Um, Mahalia Jackson says that I was born with a song in my mouth. Well, she learned it from the time she was a child, and you know this is the way that oral history comes about. Now, interestingly enough, when you were doing your introduction on me, Brandy, you were talking about um, uh, our recent trips to Canada, and I was thinking, you know, the biggest fan base for my group is in Western Canada. So there are a whole bunch of Canadians who have heard authentic African-American roots music. Through them, this music will stay alive. And if they're honest about what they heard and where they got it from, they will be able to tell people exactly where this music comes from. That's what oral tradition is about. 
There are also children in schools around here in Berkeley, thanks to UC Berkeley and Zellerbach, who have heard this music and have asked questions, and the questions have been answered. And they, in turn, because they are so young, will carry this music forth into the end of the 21st century and then into the 22nd, and that is, you know, the goal. Um, so that will be my piece. I'm going to turn it over to Marlon. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I, I feel so honored to be uh, part of such an esteemed panel. Um, and so just briefly, I'd like to talk about what I can offer to this discussion um, in terms of the research work that I do in performance and, and culture. Um, I think of diaspora and the way in which I use it to discuss uh, ballroom culture is similar to what has previously been said, and it's really interesting the way these, these uh, talks are connecting, and it's, it's very diasporic, the way it's sort of coming together. Um, I think of dispersal and dispersal of bodies and forms and also memory in some ways, um, but not just dispersal of bodies from a distant cultural homeland, although for many people in terms of their memory, memory and the way in which they see themselves, that is the case, but also dispersals from institutions of uh, belonging, of cultural belonging, of, of social belonging. Um, and I am interested in terms of the ways in which performance is used by these, these bodies to, um, and performance forms are used by these bodies and people to create alternative worlds, what uh, performance theorist Jose Munoz calls alternative worlds, world-making. Um, and the way in which I, I look at ballroom culture is I look at it in terms of the intersections between theatrical performance or modes of performance, such as dance, um, music, visual art, um, and theater, um, and performance of everyday life. For the culture uh, with which I work, th these things converge and, and create the alternative world in which they create. I don't know how many of you have heard of the film called Paris is Burning, but usually when, people, when I tell people I do research on ballroom culture, they say, oh, ballroom dancing. And uh, it's not really that. Uh, <laughs> dance is very important to the culture, and I'm going to show you a piece of dance, a Vogue dancing, uh, Vogue performance, um, which is a, uh, an amalgamation of African diasporic dance forms, but it is a ballroom cre creation. It's a ballroom cultural creation. And you've seen some of it when it was sort of appropriated by Madonna in her videos, you know, Vogue, the, the song Vogue and the, the video Vogue. And you saw ballroom, you saw ballroom members actually performing Vogue. Um, so this culture is a, um, a, a black, queer, and in some places, Latino, Latina queer culture in terms of places where black people and Latinos live in, in similar, similarly situated conditions, both in geography and in social, um, socioeconomically. And what brings them together is that they are queer, and most many of them have been in some part or some way ostracized from their uh, institutions of belonging, such as family, home, and community. They draw upon, and I, I, 
I, I was fascinated by this by the, when the, f- the first time that I actually um, attended a ball and participated in a ball. Um, I was fascinated by the resemblance of the performance forms. Before I did, I was even, I even knew anything about ballroom culture. I had um, performed, I had ex- uh, conducted extensive research on performance in West Africa, uh, in Togo, in Benin, and Ghana primarily, um, observing uh, voodoo rituals and um, participating in theatrical performance and, and so on and so forth. And I was, I was amazed that when I saw ballroom, um, how similar it looked. Now, members of the ballroom community are deeply embedded in black communities in the U.S., which is a part of the African diaspora. So um, it's no uh, surprise that some of the elements of ritual performance or performance rituals of the African diaspora uh, appear in this cultural, these cultural practices. And some of the things that I, I just, um, I was just reflecting on Linda's um, video um, Linda's video clip, and I, I saw the same sort of structures. I mean, there are some elements here that we can sort of talk about in terms of what um, what we might call an African diasporic performance practice, if you will. Um, there is usually an interlocutor, uh, a person in the middle, someone that facilitates um, the different aspects of performance. And when you see the clip, you will see that the commentator in ballroom culture serves that role. And the commentator in ballroom culture has to be very skilled at chanting, at using his, his and it's most of the time it's a male, and that's, I'm, I'm very critical of that, but that's a whole other discussion. But um, using his... Um, articulatory um, skills, chanting, and, and, and matching his voice with the beat. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll see that. And there is an interrelationship between the movements of the Vogue performers, and, and they have to do this, they're required, to match the commentator who is matching the music. There is also, a, and this speaks to the call and response, but not only is the call and response happening between sounds, between um, articulate, articulate for certain articulations, vocal articulations, but it's also happening between the commentator making the sound and the call and response from the performers, their hand movements, and then the audience. I call this a system of performance at, at balls, and I call these, ritual, these balls rituals, ball rituals. And what happens is the system of performance comprises, is comprised of the commentator, who's the interlocutor, the audience, the spectators, who in an African diasporic sense, you're never just a spectator, um, the performers, and the music, the DJ. There's always, uh, there, even though ballroom is not set up, when you have a ball, it, you have spectators on one side of a runway, right? But it always ends up becoming a circle <laughs> because the audience gets excited and they start, they start moving their bodies to be in a closer proximity uh, with the actual performers on the runway. So you end, usually when the runway is on the same you know, level as the, as the rest of the room, there's a circle that, that emerges. And then there's all, I mean, there are a whole lot of other things, but there's also the, the prominence of rhythm. Rhythm is essential 
And I noticed this, I, I, I've seen this to be the case in, in all of the um, African diaspora performance um, practices that I have observed. Um, before I show the clip, though, what is really special about this culture and in terms of performance of everyday life, it speaks to the way in which its members rely upon the performance of the body to rearticulate and in some cases disarticulate from normative gender and sexual performances of everyday in terms of masculinity, in terms of femininity, um, and create literally uh, new ways of being in their gendered and sexualized bodies. Also, there is a kinship system that is inextricably linked to the actual balls. Houses put on balls. Houses are like families. They have a familial structure to them, in many cases to replace or serve as an alternative means of family and kinship um, from those institutions of family that they have been tossed out of in some cases, or their gender and sexuality is not accepted. Um, um, these identities are not accepted in their, in their, uh, by their uh, biological families. So they have an elaborate kinship system. And the, each house sponsors a ball, and the houses compete against one another. So individual performers who represent the house like they're representing a family, they compete against other families. And they gain prominence and status, and it creates an entire very complicated and sophisticated world. Now, no... With the exception of Paris's burning, there has been no um, ethnography, comprehensive ethnography uh, conducted on this culture, except for my dissertation that I just finished a couple, few months ago. Um, <laughs> so um, the, the approach that I um, undertake, the approach that I decided to take on was a performative ethnography where I offer my own body Remember I said in African diasporic performances, you can never just be a spectator. So as a black queer person myself from a working class family who's also a performer and interested in everyday performance, I am a member of a house and participate and compete um, along with the members of the ballroom community with which I study. Now, that has some advantages, and it also has some disadvantages, and we can talk about that uh, more extensively. But I am subject, subjected to, because all performances are judged. They have a panel of judges, and you'll see that in the, in the uh, clip as well. All performances are judged, and you're judged by your peers, and many of them don't know that I'm you know, working on my PhD. My house knows, but you know, everybody else, I'm just another you know, black queer person performing and trying to snatch a trophy, as we call it in ballroom, right? Um, and so that means that I could get chopped. And chopped in ballroom means disqualification. It's very cruel. <laughs> you feel like doo-doo. <laughs> you feel really bad. Um, and so it, it creates a lot of anxiety and fear for me because it is a form of judgment that happens within the community because they've set up their own sort of standards of status. So this is the way in which performance, and has, as it has done in other 
African diaspora communities or communities that have been displaced, that have had to reconstitute themselves. This is what ballroom culture has done. So what you will be seeing is just a brief um, clip of a ball that has a, it's, it's a, a Vogue battle. And battle, vo um, in, in balls, battles are when you have one person competing against another one in front of the panel of judges, and they're competing like they're going to lose their life if they lose, right? Um, and it's, just pay attention to the commentator. You'll be able to hear the commentator in the background. You'll be able to hear the music a, a bit, and you'll see the excitement, and you'll see the, the, the way in which the movements of the body coincide with the rhythm that the commentator is creating alongside the, excuse me, the, um, the DJ or the music. And this is raw footage, by the way, so. <laughs> so I want to see the second one. There we go. This is called New Way Bow. I'm sure that um, Professor Clark will find this very interesting as a dance scholar. Um, oh, I don't know what happened to Reggie, but um, the, you can see the, the various dance forms, um, the, the sort of com combination of street dance, and you mentioned capoeira, and I mean, all of these forms have been brought together, aspects of them, break dancing, has, they've been brought together to create this dance form. Now, Old Way, um, I didn't show you a, a clip of Old Way, but Old Way is a more, um, it's a more staccato, slow movement, but as you see, um, the new way voguing, it involves dips, um, um, duck walks, um, turns and spins, and I don't know how they do that. So, but um, it just speaks to the sort of interrelationship between um, the different uses and um, ways in which performance creates a community and the actual connections of different performance forms throughout the diaspora this, this, uh, that are undertaken by this black queer community in the United States. Now, Ballroom has, it, has expanded since the days of Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning was, came out in 1990. as a film by Jenny Livingston, um, and the, the, um, ethnography, the ethnographic part of her film was taken in the late 80s in, in Harlem, New York. Now Ballroom exists in every major city across the country. My ethnography was based in Detroit. 
Michigan. Um, and there are houses that have different chapters, and they have um, national house, house structures where the national house is in New York, and then you have different chapters all over the country, and you have house mothers, overall house mothers. So it's, it's a very extensive thing. Um, so I, I will be here to answer any questions about it, but uh, thank you for allowing me to discuss it. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. And um, I want to begin by uh, thanking Professor uh, Brandy Katanis and also uh, Marlon Billy for inviting us. I think it's a very special opportunity to share our thoughts on the different experiences of African diasporas in the plural, because so far we have uh, heard about African-American uh, experiences through different times. And it has been ex extended through different spaces also precisely because African-American music has traveled a long way in many different parts of the world and have been, as uh, Linda Tillery mentioned, has been claimed by many people. I want to actually take us to another time and space and it is in the present historical moment, and the place and space is the Caribbean, where I've been working for the past more than two decades. Um, I have been working for many, many years on the cultural politics of Afro-Caribbean uh, diasporas. I have been interested in working on cultural politics as they are expressed through music. My belief is that music is never merely cultural. It's also sociopolitical. It's engaged in all sorts of tensions. I'm interested in the kind of cultural work that music does for Afro-Caribbean people. My examples today uh, will focus particularly on Trinidad, where I've been working over the past many years. But it has, of course, a lot in common with the evocation of Martinique or Guadeloupe and, of course, the other practices in African-American uh, uh, African uh, practices. But to speak about the cultural work of music and musical practices by Afro-Trinidadians, I feel it is useful, it has been useful for me to think about diaspora in terms of positionality in order to highlight and stress the tensions that always animate Afro-Caribbean practices. So one of the first things to think about diaspora is to say that uh, home is never fixed. It's always relational. So one of the first ways to think about diaspora is, of course, to think along the lines that were evoked just now, that is, historically dynamic relationship uh, between a homeland and an enforced dispersal. But also in the Caribbean, one has to speak about a double displacement oftentimes from the motherland, Africa, to the Caribbean, and then oftentimes to other host countries that many Caribbean people experience. Stuart Hall, the cultural critique that is probably known to many here, views such an experience as a double inscription that is part of the colonial legacy uh, the legacy of the colonial regime that work in two polarized, polarized spaces, the metropolis and the post-colony. So in fact, Stuart Hall says that he had to go to England to learn that he was black. Mm. 
So I'm interested in speaking about this kind of positioning because they will inform how people, uh, depending on the space and place they are, how they position themselves and how also they are positioned. Now, a third way to think, so there's, there's Africa and then there's the Caribbean through slavery. There's actually then after that another diasporic location, let's say North America or England. But there's also a third one, a third positionality uh, to, to think about diaspora that I think is important. Is that home for many Caribbean people is right there in the islands. So therefore home becomes Trinidad. So for people living in North America or England, Trinidad is home. In the Nationalist Project, in the same vein, Caiso or Calypso became seen as the authentic practice of Trinidad and Tobago. So what it means is that the imagined home of return is not necessarily Africa in the Caribbean, even though the relationship is there always. So home is not fixed, it is relational. And here I want to uh, refer to the complex traveling and entanglements of musicians by just giving an anecdote, for example. Um, this is just to evoke the many connections that are ongoing among artists of the Caribbean, and here I'm referring to Trinidadian artists. And here is an example. Three years after arriving from Jamaica to England on a boat, the MV Wind Windrush, Lord Kitchener, whose sobriquet evokes imperial circuits traveled by the famous British colonial officer in India and Egypt, sang, London is the place for me, in 1951. Two years later, he wrote, Africa, my home. After opening his own club in the Manchester, touring the United States for six months, and staying in England for a few more years, he returned to Trinidad in 1963. Now, that shows that actually when he's in England, he is also a Caribbean person. And when he is, of course, uh, thinking within the Caribbean population in England, he is Trinidadian. C.L.R. James, a very important thinker of the Caribbean, has seen the Calypsonian as a nationalist subject but for C.L.R. James, the nation was pan-Caribbean, which adds to another layer, actually, uh, uh, in the way artists position themselves in and outside the Caribbean. A fourth one, uh, way, a, a fourth way to think about diaspora in the Caribbean is within the nation, among discrepant diasporas. And by this I mean, I mean Afro-Trinidadian diaspora and East Indian diaspora living together in Trinidad. Like any musical scenes, diasporas are not fixed, but they radically shaped by power relations and constantly redefined to mark boundaries of exclusion. And on this, I want to segue, uh, in fact, with some soundings that will actually a, uh, present some sounds that are associated with Afro-Trinidadians. And then I will actually show short, very brief clips that actually show how these music, Afro-Trinidadian music, are never actually functioning as an island, as it were, but they are always enmeshed and entangled, and entangled with many other musics with uh, whom the artists cohabit. 
So I'd like to just give you an idea of the sound of Soka. Um, Soka is a musical offshoot of Calypso. Calypso is in practice, if not officially, the emblematic practice music of Trinidad and Tobago. Soka would be actually with synthesizers, drum machines and all. However, it has that, uh, that uh, rhythmic section that will relate to Calypso, but with a sensibility that will entangle many others of the Caribbean and elsewhere. So just to put some sounds, and after that we'll see the video. Um, the first song is by Marshall Montano and Ecstatic. This is a song that was actually performed in uh, 2003. Uh, it's called On the Road. It's uh, just uh, like 30 seconds. Okay, we'll hear another one, and this is called Mad Men, just very briefly. And this is, of course, as you realize, the music directly from Carnival. Okay, this is music links to Carnival. This is uh, music that basically uh, are employing a lot of repetition, uh, rhythm sections that truly matter at all times. And now we're going to see how these sounds become uh, entangled with others. Um, what I will play now is um, uh, to illustrate the following. This is the same singer, Marshall Montano, and his band called Ecstatic that will be actually performing uh, at a show in 2004. And the song is called No War, with the same extremely energetic type of rhythm, but this time really uh, focusing on a feeling uh, on peace and questioning the reason for having any war. The reason I want to play it, it's here to show uh, the tensions, but also the collaboration among discrepant diasporas. At the beginning, yeah, at the beginning, we will see um, we will see uh, Marshall Montano performing in a typical style of soca, therefore jumping up, which is of course uh, remindful of a lot of African movements that I'm sure uh, Regis uh, Wilson has observed in many parts of the Caribbean, but also in Africa, the jump up, uh, up and down. Uh, and other movements. But then, at some point, he will actually turn and he will ask, actually, the people uh, to give them, uh, to give him what he called uh, Dalai Lama soundings, meaning sounds that will evoke India or East, uh, East Indian uh, sounds. And on this, he will mix together, actually, a very well-known movement among the Afro-Caribbean uh, uh, dancers, which is called a juke, where you put your pelvis forward. He will match the sounding of East Indian type of sounding with this uh, choreographic kind of movement, extremely common in African diaspora in the, Carib in the Caribbean. So we will just now see if that works. <laughs> 
This is here where the East Indian sounds are coming. up here to just segue quickly to the next one to show how these very sounds are entangled in another way with another artist. The next example is with an artist called Ricky Jai who is East Indian from Trinidad and he is going to perform in a Soka Mona competition, therefore within the same style that we just heard uh, performed by Marshall Montano. This time what is interesting for you to notice is that the dancers accompanying him will have actually outfit that very much look like an East Indian type of outfit that would be performed for another type of music associated with East Indians. Yet they include also Afro-Trinidadians performing but he will sing a soca, therefore Afro-Trinidadian style, and then he will have a section that is slower that is actually uh, echoing Jamaican dance hall. And after that, we'll return to soca. And I'd like to just play that and I'll comment afterwards. He is in the dance hall section. to describe uh, what's happening here. I call this audible entanglements. 
In this case, it's not only audible because we actually viewed it. Uh, this is at the end of Carnival when the voices are very strained because they have been singing every night, hours and hours on end. What is there is the energy, the sense of really coming together. However, my stress here is to speak about audible entanglements, but not as though they are all harmonious. I want to speak about the tensions. Audible entanglements for sound sites, moments, and mode of its enunciation articulated through musical practices. They are not merely musical. Audible entanglements through competitions assemble social relations, cultural expressions, and political formations. And I want to linger a little bit on the political formation. The fact that the East Indian had to perform soca in order to be part of the carnival scene that is serving as the authenticating space for a national subject is telling a lot about the positioning of Afro-Trinidadians in the sphere of nationalist politics. What I'm getting at here is that the issue of authenticity in Afro-Trinidadian uh, uh, music is foregrounded in many ways and tied with uh, the national politics. Calypso, Soka, the musical of Shoot, has been part of a nationalist project that has been linked with politics of exclusion. Many people outside of the Caribbean know very little or at all the fact that half of the population in Trinidad is East Indians. And yet, they come together in quite interesting ways however, always intentions with never actually an equal, uh, an equal place in the social hierarchy. That brings me to the fact that hybridity has been part of the nationalist discourse about unity in the Caribbean, in many islands, including Trinidad. However, Calypso has been the selective tradition to represent Trinidad. And I use the term selective tradition in the sense of Raymond Williams. That is something that is actually over other musical practices, that actually is doing cultural work to present a particular sensibility in connection with others, other African diasporas in the United States, in other parts of the world, and as well as in Africa. But it also has put aside other musical practices, including Afro-Trinidadians. For example, who know about the bongo tradition related to the funeral wakes in Trinidad? Who knows, for example, about the Orisha cult, apart from a few? These musics have not made it in the limelight. So I have been interested in speaking about African diasporic practices in relationship to the cultural politics that they help enunciate and with which they actually position themselves. Um, in that sense, uh, the, um, it has elevated Calypso above all, all, all other music. So what I, I want to conclude with, and, and I want to turn to our next speaker here, is that to think about African diaspora, in my view, is extremely important to go beyond the fact that they are homogeneous. And I find that at the same time, while we uh, highlight the, uh, for example, common sensibilities they share, it is also very important to situate them in the different distinct 
socio-political economic context in which they emerge because it will also highlight how the sensibilities have actually taken on all sorts of qualities and a sentiment of solidarities in very particular milieu, uh, African diasporic ones as well as non-Afro diasporic ones. Thank you. Good afternoon, good evening, which we might be close to. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here serving on this panel with all of you. <laughs> um, there are, uh, tons of things came up as you guys uh, talked. And um, I feel like I want to talk a little bit less and maybe show, because I'm actually showing some of my own work. Um, but a couple of things came up to me that definitely um, this idea of diaspora um, to me is very much about a dispersal of a people or a culture. And um, I don't know if the, what the actual dictionary definition is or whether it's forced or happens in other types of ways. Um, and Sometimes we get caught up, and I don't know if that definition also is specific to if it's dispersal of people or a people, um, whether that be Jewish, Indian, African, or African-American, or Trinidadian, or Caribbean. I think you can look at it and problematize it in a lot of different ways. Um, another thing that kind of, where my head's kind of reached at in hearing a bunch of this is a question that I had a long time ago when I started to make my work, um, which somehow the best way, and I still don't know that I figured out a better way to express it, is how do you convince uh, someone that you are a human being when everything that makes up who you are is exactly the opposite of what they think makes up a human being? And I think that um, diaspora or dispersal, um, we carry a lot of assumptions about that. We carry a lot of assumptions about who is, um, when we go and look at other people, when we go look at ourselves, we carry assumptions about who we are, who this group of people is, and we carry about, we carry assumptions about what they should be doing and how they should be relating to each other. And in creating contemporary performance myself, it becomes really kind of problematic trying to figure out how people are reading my work. And um, I've done a lot of research and I had my own problems or issues with hearing in public venues or scenarios um, Negro spirituals. And then I would look back on what I remembered growing up hearing on Sunday church, sleeping through sometimes, um, it, they weren't the same, even though they were supposed to still be from the same culture and be the same thing. As um, Linda pointed out earlier, that that sound wasn't the same sound, even though the words were the same, and the basic harmonies might be the same, but the way it was executed was very, very different. Um, I'm going to show you um, some excerpts. I'm probably just going to I think it, it may or may not be effective just to click through with this DVD technology, click through the beginning of a couple of chapters and let you see the sections of a work called Black Burlesque Revisited, which is a collaboration that I worked on for a long time with um, um, 
some members of my company, Fist and Hill Performance Group, which is an eclectic group of people doing kind of New York downtown postmodern work based in the African diaspora, <laughs> uh, with members from the uni United States, from the Caribbean, and from Africa, pretty much black folks, but from all different kinds of places, uh, collaborating with a company from Trinidad and Tobago called Noble Douglas Dance Company, which is more of a modern dance company, a traditional modern kind of gram, if you know anything about dance, gram-influenced um, base, and a traditional group from Zimbabwe called um, Black Mfilosi. And Black Mfilosi is predominantly a vocal group, and they sing in bube music, which is like um, Lady Smith Black Mombazo, if you've ever heard of them or the Graceland album with Paul Simon. <laughs> um, and we worked, we started working in 1996, and the project did not reach its completion until 2003 because of economics and traveling and trying to get to each other's kind of homelands and find out about the differences. And the piece kind of comes together. Um, the key question to me was the assumptions people make about where a sound, where a dance, or where somebody looks like they're from. And I tried to um, play with their brains on that. Thank you. 
just to summarize or close that up with some words is I, my theory for a while has been that I think and kind of strongly believe that individual, individuals create culture. And I think a lot of times we like to think of it the other way around, that culture creates individuals. Um, but in my work, I really try and find, and in the research that I've done, I usually end up finding that there's some individual that has found some way of creating innovation. And that innovation creates something new that along the line becomes the standard or the what is the norm for that culture. So that's, that's my premise about diaspora. Well, um, I want to thank everyone for being here. We are actually very close to the end of our appointed time together. So I just wanted to respond a little bit to some of the through lines that I saw across the presentations. Um, one thing, just working backwards, is the formal continuities um, amongst the different examples that each of you brought to bear in terms of thinking about there being something that is recognizable as an aesthetic of the African diaspora, seeing similar movements, similar spatial relationships, um, similar performance energies happening in all of these different sites. And I really liked the comment that Jocelyn made about locating diaspora in a time and a place. And so when you see a movement in one place and one time, it registers one way, and it registers completely differently when you move it to another place and time. But being able to recognize that similarity is that way of seeing that individuals continue to create culture. Um, another thing that stood out to me as you all were speaking and offering your examples is the sense that um, diaspora is a practice you know, part of why it is dynamic and nothing that we can pin down and something that we have to think of in the plural rather than in the singular is because people are constantly using performance to maintain relationships and to belong to one another and to belong to communities and nations. And this sense of belonging and the sense of rejection or... Um, buffering against a potential rejection is something that seems to come across through each of the different um, spaces so that when you have the people in the Gullah Islands who are resisting and redefining their relationship to slavery and the afterlife, or you have Catherine Dunham resisting or redefining her relationship to modern dance traditions. You have um, queer performers who are redefining their relationship to family, redefining their relationship to uh, performed identity categories, or you have artists in um, national contexts who are performing themselves into um, this national Trinidad and Tobagan identity. It's, it's really interesting to see when we ask why do we continue to need to speak about performing diaspora, why does it continue to be a way that we think about black culture and the way that it gets experienced seems to be because um, time and place are so important and getting to insert yourself into a culture 
bring a culture to bear on your body, that performance is the place where that continues to be allowed to happen. So I just want to thank each of you for bringing these really wonderful examples of how and why diaspora continues to be performed today. A couple of people that I want to recognize before we have to say goodbye are people who helped to make this panel today happen in ways large, small, and everything in between. So in no particular order, I just want to say special thanks to Lisa Wymore, Michelle Rabkin, Jennifer Reel, Kate Matson, Eugene Palmer, Brian Fugelsang, Kate Duffley, Laura Abrams, Stephen Small, the Departments of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies, and African American Studies, and the Consortium for the Arts, as well as the folks at UCTV, and also many students who were involved in bringing the logistics of today together. So thank you all for being here, and thank you very much to each of you panelists for sharing your scholarship and your creativity with us today. Thank you.